Welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the programme that remembers the other two theme tunes in The Amazing Adventures of Morph. Joining me today to talk about some of the things that she remembers that nobody else ever seems to is political commentator, writer and stand-up comic, Emma Burnell. Hi Jim. Hi Emma. What, what are you up to and where can we find it? I am mostly up to talking about nonsense, uh, particularly political nonsense, on Twitter and you can find me at Emma Burnell underscore and I also have a weekly column for the Open Labour website. Well, not wanting to do too much of an easy segue between that and your first <laughs> choice, here's an extract from it. In the year of 84, shit really hit the fan When Mac the Knife McGregor, Maggie Thatcher's hatchet man Said he'd have to close another 20 pits to meet the plan And ditch another 30,000 miners Daddy, were you with the first of the first? Did you tell the NCP to do its worst? Or did you save your lily liver, sell the union down the river? A scab, a black leg, one forever Okay, that was a track from what was apparently called Which Side Are You On? Music for the Miners, which featured such chart-busting artists as The Country Pickets and Red Music. <laughs> I think we kind of know what side they were on. Okay, <laughs> Emma, tell us about this tape. So, I grew up in a very political household, but it was also a household that was comprised of a couple of uh, basics of civil servants. My mum worked in social services, my dad worked in personnel for a council in inner London. So, our experience of the miners' strike was very much one of support rather than um, direct understanding of what was happening. As a eight, nine-year-old, I was dragged on endless marches, and I, you know, I really felt for the miners. I just had no literal understanding of what a miner actually was, rather than a poor person that Mrs Thatcher was trying to kick, essentially. (laughs) But one of the things that did bond our family together was singing. So there was this tape that went around in the in the 80s during the miners' strike that people were buying in order to fund miners' support. I think as you know, down to the level of food banks and up to the level of campaigning activities. And we all had this, and so we would sing along to these dreadfully twee folk songs about how you know he was fighting for the people and paeans to Arthur Scargill, which anyone who understands my current um, plight in the Labour Party will find quite amusing that I spent my single digit years singing along to and yeah and some genuinely good versions of uh, classics like which side are you on okay so I'm guessing it was all in that mode it was all kind of the post Pete Seeger jangalangalang yodely folk yeah, yeah I mean I love a bit of, of uh, you know old English yodely folk and uh, you know I, I these are the people who made the the woodcraft folk work a bloke with a beard and a guitar was what we considered a good time in those days well th- that's fair enough but that kind of brings me onto a possibly a difficult question in that obviously despite being from the north despite being from a community that was affected by a different kind of industrial closure on a mass scale I've got no recollection of this at all my recollections of the minor strike and music are kind of things like soul deep by the style council the red wedge movement the video for don't leave me this way even the flying pickets really their name i remember thinking at the time oh they must be you know 
supporting the miners. Now, given that, you know, that was the sort of thing that Phil to do to a kid like me, the stuff I was seeing on the telly and hearing on the radio every day, is there a sense in which the Which Side Are You On album was kind of preaching to the converted? Oh, like, absolutely. I don't think there was any sense that it was out there to change minds. It was out there to raise money, which is a reasonable mm. uh, thing to do, particularly given that what was essentially happening to the miners is they were being starved out. So there were lots and lots of different fundraising efforts of which this group of folk artists was one. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It was it was a bit twee looking back. It was a bit earnest. But you know what? Those were earnest times. Well, they were because I should say the B-side of Soul Deep was Paolo Hewitt interviewing some miners, which you know, <laughs> you I'm go. sure all the leftover jam fans think, ooh, I wonder what this B-side will be like. And yeah. there's a very earnest man talking to some very earnest people. So they were earnest times, yeah. I've noticed it seems to be worth quite a bit of money now no how um, ironic <laughs> I think well, we've got yeah. 20 pills <laughs> so you know maybe people are still interested in it but it's a huge part of social history I'd be really surprised if they didn't have a copy somewhere in the People's History Museum over in Manchester it was the miners strike was a movement that kids in Hackney felt an affinity to as much as people in mining communities I mean I think if you look at the success a couple of years ago of the film Pride which was all about communities with actually who were ostensibly seen as completely separate and not having much in common finding their commonality in their fight against a common enemy in Thatcherism and Thatcher and I think that 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 was such a successful film that I think it does speak to something deeper in all of us and that's what you know that's what a lot of us found even as a the precocious nine-year-old child <laughs> and the minor strength. You know, it's, it's in my politics for life. Well, that's interesting because we're about to move on to a group of people who I don't think found any commonality in any fight ever apart from possibly the fight against not having enough Pop-Tarts in the cupboard. Elizabeth, I voted for you. That's nice to know. But I'm Jessica. Elizabeth's over there somewhere. Oh, sorry. You both look so much alike. Wow. I never noticed. Your sister seems to have cornered the nerd vote. Okay, well, that was a clip from the TV adaptation of the Sweet Valley High books, which is something that I'm aware of, (laughs) but I know very little about. All I can tell about them is that there were a long series of books, a bit like the Skinhead books from the 70s from over here, but given that one was called Trapped in the Mall, I don't (laughs) think they've got much in common with the Skinhead books. Please tell me I'm wrong. I don't know the skinhead books, so I, I can't tell you you're wrong, but given that the defining feature of the, the central twins, Jessica Elizabeth Wakefield, was their blonde hair, um, may, maybe the, maybe that was the defining feature of the skinhead books, his no hair. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's a, a jarring jump from the my, my very right-on politics of the 80s to my secret adoration of these terribly un-PC books all about these two twins and they would fight injustice and particularly Elizabeth Wakefield who was the goody-goody twin but they were I mean they were there is no moral upstanding defense of Sweet Valley High except that I bloody loved them and I just I wanted I had this vision of what what 16 was like and it was blonde and driving a red car around California and sadly it never came true well, how did these books come onto your radar? Was it was like were they like the sort of things that were passed around the school playground, like contraband, like 
like uh, Secrets of the School Underground. I remember that being a book, Diary of a Teenage Health Freak, uh, all kinds of things like that. Well, the the books at the Omen were based on, I remember being passed around, and the Spitting Image book, of course. But no, was it the, like that? the ones that got passed around our school were Forever by Judy Bloom, in which oh, right, had yes. sex, yeah. and Lace, in which a woman had sex with a goldfish at one point. <laughs> that was the bit that, ev- that everyone was talking about in my school. No, um, this was literally a judging a book by its cover moment. I was in the children's library and I'd graduated from you know, your basic mega mog type stuff and I saw this cover of a pretty blonde girl and I thought, oh, she looks nice. I want to be like her. I'll read her story. And then I read all hundred of her stories and then I read her stories when they went to university. And the the most amazing thing is that they have now released on ebook some grown up stories about the, the Wakefield twins. And the Wakefield twins were picture perfect twins. Uh you know, nothing controversial ever happened to them. So these they they've both grown up to be these terribly bitter people. Have you read any of the grown-up books? Gosh, yes, twice. <laughs> um, is it kind of like a shopping obsessed variant of the closed circle, which uh, the hated sequel to the Rotters Club? <laughs> no, it's. Uh, I mean, it's like a Sweet Valley High book in that they the most ridiculous things that happen to these twins in each episode. So if you actually add up. The amount of times they've been kidnapped, the amount of times, you know, they've met drug addicts who've died, uh, the amount of times that they've had all these terrible things happen to them. I mean, I think they managed to kill between them probably more than a dozen people in some accident or another. (laughs) They are, they are, Jessica Wakefield is Jessica Fletcher, writ large. (laughs) But no, I mean, I don't, I don't want to spoil this for any future readers who might want to know what goes on, uh, but they're the shocking twist in the grown-up books is that spoiler alert jessica's run off with todd who was elizabeth's boyfriend throughout their teenage years and this has caused a rift in the twins the twins are not speaking uh, but are drinking and shagging a lot right unless that's a torchwood style rift that doesn't mean very much <laughs> to me but it's interesting that you know this is around the same time as we have beverly hills 90210 i think roughly the same sort of ballpark though degrassi junior high people being obsessed with things like greece and i remember people turning up to school in those bloody letterman jackets oh yeah yeah, yeah. and they're all the Brat Pack films are basically all the sort of things that made Jeremy out of Jeremy or Pearl Jam kill himself. Why were we so obsessed over here with American high school? So we really, I even had a ZX Spectrum game called Mikey set in high school. It was this picture of perfection. The sun always shone, everyone was blonde and Aryan, but they would address racism by having one black character. Right. There was, you know, no one was ever unhappy for very long. Nothing too awful ever happened, and if it did, it was resolved within the space of a book uh it was you know it was it was a way of dealing with teenage issues that you Mm. were dealing with but through this filter of utter perfection that you could never achieve (laughs) but always hope to attain well quite a long way from being chased over railings in the skinhead books then (laughs) but uh moving on from that to i can't actually do a link here because i have no idea what this is bring it to the other side. This side doesn't have to exactly be even because you can just cut it off later. And then you make a knot in the middle like so and then it should sort of look 
like this. Right. Is Sassier the next thing is Scooby-Doo, but spelt in a weird German way. So I'm hoping against hope that there wasn't an episode of the new Scooby-Doo movies where Scooby, Scooby-Dum and Scooby-Dee went to Germany and met their German cousin. Please, I'm begging you, tell me it's not that. I promise you, Tim, there is no Scrappy anywhere involved. Scrappy wasn't in in that state, so I'm not reassured. It took me ages to Google what this actually was called because in my school it was called Scoopy Lou. Um, and what it was, was the... When I was about six or seven to about eight or nine, there was a craze of essentially crocheting plastic strings together. And the best you could get from this was a square, about two or three inch keyring of entwined plastic strings, which were the height of fashion. If you didn't have a slightly odd square plastic key ring that you had made yourself out of entwining plastic strings, then you were nobody. And apparently this was French and called Scooby-Doo. But when I found it, we just called it Scoopy-Loos. And we would buy endless square plastic strings in different colours and sit there together in the playgrounds, knotting them together and, and trying, trying and usually failing to make the different colours swirl around the long square plastic bit of nonsense that you ended up with. So was this one of those like playground dark arts of girls that they would never explain what they were? Like those paper things where you went like one, two, three, four. Oh and, yeah, yeah, fortune tellers. There were all those things. <laughs> Their purpose would never be explained to anyone male. They were never allowed to join in. <laughs> so it was it was basically a, a, a girl thing, wasn't it? Was it was very much a girl thing. And it was fascinating is I think these things have existed through the years. So I found a book that we used to belong to my grandmother of games that you could play with a knotted piece of string, a, a piece of string that went in a circle. And it was exactly the same sort of thing, just something interesting to do with your hands while you sat around and gossip with your mates which is really what scoopy loo is for so i've called them scoopy loo again because in my head that's <laughs> what they are um it you know it's just a way of keeping your hands busy before you go through that teenage um, phase of starting to smoke okay but you couldn't actually smoke this stuff when you God, no. <laughs> <laughs> you would i mean, you would horribly horribly die of intoxicating fumes it was it was it was cheap plastic string knotted together to look like a vaguely nice and was it one of those things where just one day somebody turned up with it in the playground, everyone ran around going, <gasps> and then went straight to the news agents on the way home and got it? I suspect it. someone got taken on holiday to France, which is yeah. where they originated, and went, oh my God, all the cool kids are doing this, and they were probably a cool kid, and therefore all the cool kids started doing that, and then mm. all the less cool kids like me started going, oh, I want to be like the cool kids, I better learn my scoopy loose. <laughs> <laughs> and by that time they'd moved on to the Fanta yo-yos, which nobody remembers. I wouldn't specifically remember them as Fanta, but the yo-yo craze hit my school really hard. <laughs> we, we had a kid arrested for nicking yo-yos. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's in the city London, mate. <laughs> All I can say is, if you want to have trouble Googling something, try looking for the can-can by can, as I was looking for the other day. You won't have any joy. Okay, well, Scooby-Doo sounds quite fun, but the next thing I don't like the sound of at all. Can I see it? No, he's mine. It's ugly. No, it's not. Yes, it is. I'm babysitting. I want him in bed by 8.30. Okay. 
Okay, well, how do I put this? That is based on a story from a book called Beautiful Beasts and Eerie Creatures, which appears to be a horror anthology for children. The story, which is by one Beverly Butler, is called The Patchwork Monkey. Now, given her other stories include The Witch's Fire and The Ghost Cat, I'm not guessing this is particularly sort of settling thing to read last thing at night. I would never, to this day, I'm 42 and I won't, wouldn't, I wouldn't even dream of reading that book last thing at night. It, nothing in my, in this lifetime, I think, has scared me more than The Patchwork Monkey and that probably includes nuclear war and Donald Trump. So what actually happens in it? So the Patchwork Monkey is this doll that is given to this doll. It's an old doll and it gets passed on, I think, by a creepy old woman. I seem to remember that. And there's a a brother who is not very well and is permanently in pyjamas. And that's quite an important detail. He's wearing these blue stripy pyjamas. And the Patchwork Monkey moves. Like, so one time the girl takes him to bed, but then he's on the, the dresser or something like that. And as the story progresses, it's quite clear that Patchwork Monkey is independent of this girl, but is also taking her over. And eventually there is a tragedy and the Patchwork Monkey has a new blue and white striped patch and moves on to another family. And that's the end of the book. That's the end of the story. And you know, it's made quite clear, although only implicit, that the Patchwork Monkey has killed one of the kids. Okay, and there was me thinking the most disturbing thing about it was apparently the illustrations by Rod Ruth, who a lot of boys sort of my age would have known as the illustrator of all those books about dinosaurs. So, but well, what did the Patrick Monkey look like? It looks like, you know, a sort of monkey face with just lots and lots of patches. So the lots and lots <laughs> of patches, of course, get more and more sinister as you think of the implications of the new patch. You know, where have all the other patches come from? Uh, and that was never, ever part of the story, but it was part of the child's imagination as you walked away from the story. Now, the reason I know this story is that one of the loveliest primary school teachers in my school, Mr Pittman, used to read it. To, he used to go around the classes because it was so <laughs> popular. Because we loved being scared. Mm. It was so popular, he would go around to different classes and read The Patchwork Monkey because rumours have been flying in the... If you had The Patchwork Monkey, you've got to get Mr Pittman to read you The Patchwork Monkey. Well, what I'm kind of getting in my head is a bit like... Now, there's a bit of misconception about this. This was not a programme for children at all. You know, as the name should suggest. And people sort of misremembered it. There used to be a thing on BBC Two called Late Night Tales where it would be something like, I think, once it was John Mills telling First World War stories, that sort of thing. Yeah. But once Tom Baker was presenting it and you know it was this kind of yeah well it's the kind of thing if you know you're a kid you try to when you try to see things you're not supposed to late at night you just say ooh Tom Baker Doctor Who he's doing a thing and it's on the book tower as well so it must be quite good the start of it never mind the actual stories which are pretty creepy because I've since seen them again but the start of it had artwork of a a child with like stitches over their Mm. mouth and eyes and it cut to a teddy bear who had like human eyes and mouth yeah, sounds really similar. Yeah, that, um, I don't understand who that was for, really. I mean, I had other books that I liked. There's a lovely children's book from I think turn of the 19th century, 20th century America called Horace. And again, in the book, it's one of those really lovely repetitive books. So the story is the same every day for a week. And Horace lives with this huge family: great grandmother, great grandfather, grandma, grandma 
Grandpa, Marpa, Paul and little Lulu. And every day Pa goes out hunting and Horace eats one of them. That is the story. Really? Horace eats one of the family. And then he goes through and then their Pa was just wild and he said, I will kill you, Horace. But they all took on so he hadn't the heart to do it. And the last shot is Horace goes out hunting because he's eaten the whole family. Your kids love scary books. Yeah. And, you know, Horace, the patchwork monkey, all of these things just speak to that part of us that loves to be terrified. Mm -hmm. And I think we're really good at finding that when we're kids. Well, there's an interesting thing about I think the more scary stories, the ones that could not plausibly happen. Because I remember one of the things that initially scared me a bit as a child was this this thing the Usborne book of ghosts which is like supposed to be spotter's yeah. guide to real life ghosts it's quite frightening until yeah. there was a page signs you might be living in a haunted house and one of the clues was a skull screams when you try to move it and like no that, that I, I was about six i was thinking no that doesn't happen all of this is nonsense and i think the more fun- confusing a skull with my cat <laughs> Yeah, but I think it's the whole... I mean, it's really kind of what the League of Gentlemen picked up on, mm-hmm. I think, was that if you have reality but something completely unrealistic in it, that's actually more frightening yeah. than I mean, plausibility. I, don't get me wrong, I do like a good psychological thriller, whereas, you're right, the League of Gentlemen, the Patchwork Monkey, Horace, all of those are frightening in ways that we really like and get on board with. You know, mm. In some ways, it takes that fear that we have that's a general existential threat and actually compartmentalising goes here's the thing that you actually you can walk away from in half an hour and not be scared of anymore but you can really enjoy being scared of because it's not going to happen okay well from one kind of horror onto another very different kind of horror which is frightening in a number of ways (laughs) I unloaded a foot clip 450 Magnum point blank it disappeared he can hear its heartbeat He knows it's out there. Somebody must have seen something. He knows what it can do. You're telling me there's something running around loose in this city, ripping the hearts out of people and eating them. Maybe he eats them for breakfast. Now it's really pissing him off. Foster! And his new partner. I work alone. Makes two. Paranoid people with guns are a menace to society. You'd be paranoid too if you had a dipshit like this following you. Right, well I'm sure you'll all be running down to the local video shop to get that out after listening to this. Emma, what was the film? That was Split Second, starring the wonderful Rutger Hauer. It's a post-apocalyptic climate change disaster film slash horror movie set in 2008 and london has flooded so you know just goes to show that they were basically prophesizing boris but uh, it has some very unexpected cameos from people like pete postlethwaite ian jury kim cattrall is the love interest and also sarah stockridge and the glam metal detectives yeah indeed or <laughs> I was philadelphia say, ads as i like to think of it <laughs> i was gonna say is that on a cv but does she have a cv <laughs> Philadelphia ads glam metal split second that's a great CV (laughs) but yeah some friends of mine and I as teenagers went through this phase of watching a Rutger Howe film every weekend there was a guy who used to deliver videos in a van and now I've heard rumours he delivered more than videos in a van but I never got 
wind of any of that but we would every saturday night while we were staying in with a few tinnies we would rent three films a new film we hadn't watched a rutger hauer film that wasn't split second and split second and split second was our absolute favorite favorite film to watch over and over and over again it's so bad it's amazing <laughs> it's just it is rutger hauer films have a few really basic elements that are really important to every single one of them he has to have an absolutely fantastic but almost throwaway line at least once a third in a split second without any context the throwaway throwaway lines actually are from his sidekick dick durkin which is the best psychic name ever. His his best line is big fucking guns. <laughs> we need big fucking. They just go around the armory of amazingly huge weaponry. <laughs> too small, bigger fucking guns. Um, and then there's a bit where they they're talking about the thing that they're chasing. There's this serial killer on the list, and it turns out the serial killer is ten feet tall, has enormous teeth, and there's a lot of imagery in it. And that's Dick Durkin is a psychologist from Oxford, and you know, at first Harley Stone, which is Rutger Hauer's name. That's important to know because Harley Stone, hello, what an amazing name. So they're talking about you know whether this is you know what what it is they're chasing, and Dick Durkin says, if I weren't the rational human being, I think I am. I wouldn't say this thing thinks it's satan i'd say it was satan and rutger Hauer says yeah well satan's in deep shit and kicks the door in and it's just the best movie moment <laughs> of all time ever now, the thing is though does it actually turn out to be a monster or is it just because one thing i hate that's come into films the last 20 years is where there appears to be a sort of a superhuman killer like what's this? seven is the worst for this where you know the people who vault over like 80 foot walls or so and at the end it's just an ordinary man and you think well that, that's just stupid and that's yeah. ruined the whole thing so it's not like that is it please tell me it's an actual monster no no it's it well i mean it's a bloke in a rubber suit but it is an actual monster it, it, it the last 20 minutes they clearly ran out of money the effects let it down quite considerably um when they're actually up against the monster it looks a little bit like uh duran duran's wild boys video at the end <laughs> so yeah it's not it's not um i would say its ending is not its strongest point but it is a proper monster okay well supposing we've got a scale where at the one end you've got you know really really bad films that are really really popular for some reason where no, nobody dare say they're bad like dare I say it Forrest Gump in the middle of the scale you've got things like Absolute Beginners More Runs From Outer Space which are brilliant films but they have a terrible reputation because you know people slag them off at the time but they're better than most things that win Oscars and then the other end of the scale, you've got things like Gladiatorus, the Smack the Pony film, which is just unwatchable. Where would you say Split Second was on that scale? I think it's in the middle. It's what me... Uh, me and my friends have an annual tradition of good-bad movie night, and Split Second is a good-bad movie. It's, it's on every possible measure of artistic prowess it is a bad film the acting is okay but it's lots of people running around being caricatures of themselves the effects are terrible particularly towards the end the dialogue as written if you just saw it on a page you just wouldn't believe it but you just want to cheer it along because it's Rutger doing what Rutger does and it's amazing so it's a good bad film so I'd say somewhere in the middle of that scale in terms of utter and complete watchability whilst your head ain't going to trouble the Oscars. <laughs> and that concludes this week's edition of Wittertainment. <laughs> so uh, yes, that's your recommendation if you do or don't want to see Split Second. But now we're moving on to your last choice, which is an altogether more ho-ho 
positive view of the future. Well, that song must be burnt into the brains of anyone who watched TV in the early 80s. But, Emma, tell us what that was. That was the Ever Ready battery advert, which I know and love because when we first got a video recorder, the first thing we taped was Star Wars. And that was one of the adverts in the ad break for Star Wars. Well, it fits quite well, really, because there's a lot in it of, uh, you know, sort of pastiches of space invaders and calculators. So it's trying to ride that whole thing. And the interesting thing about it is I've looked everywhere. I can't find out who did that song. To me, it sounds like somebody like New Music or Landscape, you know, one of those sort of synthy, new romantic mm. bands. Given that people, like, I mean, Gary Newman did the Lee Cooper Jeans advert. There are a couple of other people. I wonder if it was. Quite somebody happy. making a bit of money on the side and whoever it was was incredibly good because i deliberately did not watch the advert again before talking about it mm. so i don't think i've actually seen that advert for probably over half my life so i can sit here now and go power to play music power to catch a smile power to be versatile so the fact that i can remember that all <laughs> these years later just goes to show whoever wrote it can write a bloody catchy tune. But the, well, there's one other thing that everyone remembers about it that remembers it, which is that it ends with sort of landscape made of different kinds mm. of batteries. You know, all the the big ones, the small ones, yeah, the square yeah, ones. Yeah. So, but sort of UFO battery flies through the sky. I remember as kids we used to watch it go, "What's that battery? What does that do?" Yeah. Does anyone actually know what it was? Was it like a watch battery? Yeah, no, it was way too big and way too chunky. It was like the... If anyone remembers Benji Zacks and the Alien Prince, it was like <laughs> Zacks' body. I just don't know what, I, what it was. I'm afraid that my very young brain just assimilated it as a out-of-scale watch battery, so I can't help you. <laughs> no, we were, we were really excited about what it might power. It might, <laughs> might be the robot maybe or something. Maybe you smile, Tim. Maybe you smile. <laughs> I don't think that's very futuristic. <laughs> Okay, well, showing that we haven't really moved that far forward since then, I think the battery on this recorder is about to go. So, Emma, thank you very much. Thank you, Tim. Well, at least it's free. A great big book of articles by Tim Worthington. More details, timworthington.blogspot.co.uk. <laughs>